Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Excellent. Today, we are privileged to have with us a distinguished guest. He's at the intersection of AI and ethical data practices. Reggie Tanzen is not only the vice president of the data ethics practice at SAS, responsible for leading global initiatives, on responsible and equitable AI deployments, but he's also lends his expertise as a committee member of the National Artificial Intelligence Advisory Committee. Through his extensive career, Reggie has been a strong advocate for human-centered AI innovations, ensuring we have the vast capabilities of artificial intelligence serve the greater good while minimizing harm, especially to vulnerable populations. So welcome to the show, Reggie. It's great to have you here. Hey, Alan, thank you. Excellent. So. Just wanted to start off, I'd heard you talk before that SAS, the company you work for, has serves every cabinet level department and mission critical applications. And so I'd be curious, we focused a lot on the podcast on um, regulatory issues. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I'd love to hear you talk about where you see AI going and particularly in the federal government and the kind of things it's going to be able to do for us rather than to us. Certainly, I'm happy to speak to some of that. You know, we do a lot of work with the government, namely as it relates to making the government more efficient and hopefully more effective. Now, there are some limits to technology. I'm sure we'll get into some of that. But at the end of the day, you know, the technology is there to do two things. One is to enable our values, right? But then two is to help us to execute on those values more efficiently and effectively. Now, it requires a level of process and people to support it, but most of where we show up, it would be some of the major agencies, which, you know, a lot of the acronyms that you probably can rattle off pretty quickly, all kind of in the vein of helping the government do what it does in a more efficient manner, be that identifying plans for benefits or optimizing routes for mail, right? So it's that sort of thing. And I'd seen, like, there's a lot of this, I guess, currently that's probably focused on some of the automation features behind AI of, like, maybe, mis, you know, identifying misbilling or fraudulent billing or something like that. Yeah, it's important to note that, you know, AI has been around for quite some time. We're a 47-year-old company, as an example. We've been doing this for a really long time. And most of the AI that exists today shows up in applications like you just described, right? They're, for the most part, back office, automation sorts of activities. Now, certainly there is kind of the more novel consumer-facing stuff that I'm sure you probably want to get into. But most of the activity that you see with respect to AI shows up in places like government and financial services and retail segment and healthcare in back office kind of CIO operations kinds of areas. But I guess the future, sort of everyone, as you referenced there, is moving from that back office, right, to really like a policy decision support tool. Is that sort of the idea? 
So that's a big question. I have to unravel it a bit. I think the policy conversation comes in as a consequence of some of what we're seeing in the kind of the more predictive side of AI, right? So if you can bucket AI into two buckets, one would be more prescriptive rules-based sort of artificial intelligence. So it says for a given situation or set of variables, I'm going to apply a heuristic or an algorithm, and then I expect to see a given outcome, or I want to get a general sense for what potential outcomes, plural, might exist. So that's kind of a prescriptive side. But then on the predictive side, it is for that a different set of variables, or perhaps even the same set of variables, what might I expect in the future? So think about forecasting is probably an example that everyone would be uh, familiar with. What we're experiencing now with the technology is the ability for the technology to predict some things, namely kind of filling in words, right, on a probabilistic basis. It, quite frankly, is freaking us out here. You know? like people are like, there's magic in the box, right? And so I think a lot of the policy-related conversation has to do with the predictive nature and you can see the trajectory of where we might go with predictive capabilities, even beyond, you know, the large language model stuff that I just kind of cited, you can see how it might have some pretty significant consequences and say a financial services setting where you're trying to make a determination of a credit worthiness or in a healthcare setting where you're making the determination over health, right? So depending on the kind of the levels of risk associated with that predictive capability, Certainly, there is a need to put some policy and procedural expectations in place to make sure at the end of the day that people don't get hurt. Do you see sort of a, I mean, obviously these issues are complicated and vary by agency, but in your experience, have you seen sort of reluctance to engage in AI at that level in the government and contrast that to the private sector? No, I would actually say on the contrary. I think there is uh, quite a bit of interest. Now, you know, having interest and having the ability to execute are two separate things, right? But I think there is a significant amount of interest. It is the conversation du jour, right? So if you tell people, have an opportunity to make your life better by making your work more efficient, making you as a professional more effective, I think most people by and large would say, yes, yeah, sign me up for that. But given the nature of this set of capabilities through artificial intelligence, there does need to be some deliberative activity to take place before implementing. I think that is the place where we are right now is fair amount of deliberation because at a federal government level, as an example, the consequences are tremendous, highly impactful and at scale. And so before you make changes like that, that have that kind of impact, you'd want to be deliberative. I've talked to a few other guests about, you know, there's sort of multiple different things or issues that might arise from AI. And we've kind of talked about actually the government using it and what that would do. And then there's the issues around the regulatory aspect. But there's also this issue of like citizens are, and people coming to the government entities are going to start using AI. So has the government been thinking through issues like, hey, say some company goes out and figures out a million cures for every disease and they flood the FDA or that, you know, something in that in that way where like the deluge coming in from outside is so large and that it's really going to kind of overwhelm parts of the government or think about that on a state level. Right. Or 
is that sort of a factor in, in the thinking? Well, I have to let the folks in the government speak on behalf of what the government is thinking and contemplating. I think it's safe to say, just as an observer of the space, that yeah, if you're able to produce so many widgets and you have a agency that is responsible for evaluating those widgets, if you're able to produce more than they are able to evaluate, then they become a bottleneck. I don't think that is different than what we experience today. We think about the FDA as an example and dealing with clinical trials, right? There are a lot of pharma and biotech companies that are trying to get into the trial process, but there is a bottleneck. Now, do we want to make that agency more efficient so they can process you know, all of these submissions? Well, that seems to make sense if the end goal is to be able to release therapies to the marketplace that help people get rid of certain disease states, right? So that only makes sense. Now, if the argument is that artificial intelligence is going to increase the output of those pharma and biotech companies such that the FDA can't keep up, then it stand the reason that the FDA probably ought to have some equivalent evaluative capabilities, right? So that it can keep up. Again, I think that's an age-old problem, but I think it is a, a way out of that we would prefer. You want to have somebody, in this case, agency, doing some level of due diligence as a matter of reconciling what the people who are incentivized to get uh, product to market really quickly for profit, right? You want to be able to balance that out with some objective criteria to ensure that in their haste that they don't inadvertently uh, hurt people. I guess the point being that sort of the use of AI will force the use of AI right on the other side. I personally think going to cause sort of a disruptive revolution in government. The way government is conducted and regulatory bodies operate, they're going to have to change. Perhaps. You know, we've seen this before, like the use of computers necessitated the use of computers. Use of the internet necessitated use of the internet. So in that regard, we've seen this before. I think the use of AI represents potentially a, an inflection point as we go into a kind of a new age of computing, if you will, but it is the same sort of trajectory. So let's talk a little bit about the work on the National Artificial Intelligence Advisory Committee. If you could just kind of describe the body and what it's done, and I know you have limitations on what you can speak about and who you speak for, so explain that as well. That should be clear. The limitations are for lack of desire to be transparent. It's just you have to have a, you know, a voice right, that, that speaks about these things. I'm not that voice right now. So the committee was put together by statute. So meaning, you know, it passed through Congress uh, on a bipartisan basis to be established actually back in 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Took a little while to actually formulate it, but it is a formulation of of about 26 people from industry, academia, nonprofit sector, you name it, all with some level of expertise that we bring to the table. And our charge really is to advise the president and the National AI Office on matters associated with artificial intelligence. The objectives are centered around things like bias, research and development, uh, competitiveness of the U.S. government, international cooperation and workforce. And so what we do is this group of individuals looking at all of those topics from a number of different uh, dimensions, 
and the output of our first year is in the form of a report. Folks can go out to AI.gov and check that out. In fact, it's AI.gov slash NIAC, which is N-A-I-A-C. Again, AI.gov slash N-A. But, you know, we're talking about government stuff, so there's no shortage of acronyms. My thing is, you know, I'm not a D.C. guy, so I don't talk D.C. very well. But, you know, I, I have to keep up with one or two acronyms, and that is probably the one. So the output came out in the form of that first year report. We're into our second year now. We, I'll say, sped up a bit after you know, last November, once ChatGPT came out and everybody learned how to spell AI. And so, it, you know, it's just it was a lot of conversation, as you might expect. And so under the direction of Department of Commerce, we have been asked to uh, be a little more visible, been asked to provide our thoughts on a slightly more rapid pace. And so as a consequence, you'll see some of that activity showing up as well in the form of non-decisional findings and what have you. There is a distinction, and again, I'm not a DC guy, I'm learning this. There's a distinction between decisions and recommendations that end up going to the president versus things that we just kind of observe and want to make sure that people are aware of. And so we're trying to do our level best to segregate between those two in the spirit of sharing as much information as quickly as we can to as many as we can to allow people to react to that information for the best of their situations. And how does that relate to so the AI Bill of Rights, I guess, was before the committee or kind of that was a product of OSTP, I guess. But Yeah, that was out of OSTP. So that activity was done independent of us. However, what you'll find in reading through our report are references to things like Bill of Rights, things like the NIST risk management framework, and so on. So there are a lot, as you might imagine, a lot of activities in the government going on with respect to artificial intelligence. The National AI Initiative Office has the role of attempting to corral those activities and then our reporting into that office as independent individuals working in our own personal capacities, right, are advising the government. But all of those other activities are activities of the government. So hopefully you appreciate that distinction. And that's the Office of Science and Technology Policy. I should not be throwing out the acronyms as a DC guy. I need to be careful about that. And they are an advisor to the president through the uh, office of OMB. So one thing I heard from you that I thought was really interesting, and you know, I've discussed on the podcast a couple of times, is this idea of what are the issues with AI that are sort of near term. And we talk about disinformation, jobs, you know, all these kinds of things. And then these existential threats, right? Like, oh, AI is going to take over the world and kill everybody, right? And you had a pretty good, I think, way of thinking about that. Like you said, if you had 100 people, you'd only have like one or two working on the existential part, right? Mind kind of filling that in. The idea here is that if serious people think seriously about existential prices, it is important to hear that argument out. I won't dismiss anything at face value. Just I want to hear it out. Now, for my own evaluation, I've yet to hear any argument that suggests that I should be afraid of artificial intelligence taking over the world, killing you know a large majority of people, or anything like that. While I won't entirely dismiss that there are some 
existential possibility. I just think that possibility based on everything that I've heard. And I've spent a lot of time listening and trying to learn about this stuff. There's nothing that would suggest to me that this is anything more than a really far remote possibility. Now, even really far remote possibilities, you want to make sure you appreciate what the risk level is. So I would say out of a hundred data scientists, I want to put one or two on that issue. Hey, spend a little bit of time. Let me know what's going on that we can reasonably expect in the next 25 years. But 25 years is a long time away, right? Now, there are a number of harms and ills, unintended consequences in our society today that we don't have to theorize about. We see people on our streets without homes. We see the consequences of insufficient economic participation from a number of communities throughout the country. We see gender imbalances, and the list can go on and on and on. So in my thinking, if we're ultimately concerned about humanity, I think we should just be concerned about the humans that are here today and not be so wrapped up about the humans 25, 50 years from now, if we're really concerned about humanity. And so let's use the other 98 really smart out of my example to focus on the ills of today. So that was the, uh, the whole idea that you're referencing. And I think it's a great distinction because you do hear that as sort of the fear, uncertainty, doubt kind of thing. And I'm waiting, you know, until someone comes back from the future and tells us that the machines have taken over, I'm okay. I'm going to keep moving forward, right? <laughs> Let's go into some of those near-term ills and harms and some of the things you'd focus on ethics and data equity. So maybe describe some of that, what that means and how you're involved. Well, you got to start with the idea that everybody is human. You, me, every single individual listening to this podcast, everybody is human. And why is that important? It's because we've seen throughout history, when you begin to dehumanize people, then that justifies certain ill treatment toward those people. So we start with the premise that we are all human. Then that at least puts us in the proper mindset to have the conversation that we're getting ready to have, I think. My space is data ethics, which fundamentally says, if you believe, like I do, that data is basically our recorded existence and equity is the fair treatment of humans by other humans, then we've got a statement that I'll derive that says that data at the end of the day should empower people to thrive. So. It's important to note that fair treatment, equitable treatment, is not the same as equal treatment. So equal means everything is the same. Equitable says you get your proportion based on your need. So I need to come up to uh, par with history. Spend time teaching me history, not math, right? I got enough math, right? So end of the day, data should empower people to thrive. That is my belief. And so we approached here at SAS, our work from a data ethics perspective with that idea in mind. Now, of course, artificial intelligence is the, like I said, it's the conversation du jour. And so we spent a lot of time focusing on that. And at the end of the day, it is about dealing with some of the topics and dilemmas associated with eventually making sure that where data exists, that it is used in a way that helps people to live a better life. So that is increasing their, their agency or their independence 
increasing their levels of well-being and, of course, doing that in an equitable way. There is some amount of issue, right, that the data collection or the data that we have, right, is traditionally probably underrepresented, underrepresented communities, right? So how do you see, what is it that we need to be doing as a society? Like what kinds of data should we be collecting and how can we do that in a non-invasive way, I guess? It is, so it's contingent upon the purpose. I would argue that our data is highly representative in some areas and less so in other areas. And that's for all, for every single person. So let's get more specific since we're talking about the government. The lifeblood, I think most of your listeners will, will get this, the lifeblood of artificial intelligence is data, right? So you've got data that is accessed, aggregated, managed, effectively governed, hopefully. It is then used to develop models for basically for automated decisioning, applying algorithmic techniques in that process. And then those models spit out some insights. And then we take action from those insights that are uh, that we call deployment. Right. So that's the flow. So the AI really is a life cycle. It is a process much more than it is a product. So with that flow in mind, let's think about how folks in the government situation may employ data. Well, first, you've got to make sure that you are gaining access to the data in ways that are, as you said, non-invasive or non-intrusive, which effectively is about consent. If I consent to certain data use, then I consent to that data use for a given purpose, theoretically anyway. Now, we can contrast that with what we see, say, in your end-user license agreements for any software that you download on your phone or something. You basically sign your data away to be used for any number of purposes that you have no idea about. All I wanted to do was play this game. And now, you know, I get something back to me from some ad that I had no idea about. Now, that is relatively benign if we're talking about games and ads. It's much less benign if we're talking about policing and justice, much less benign if we're talking about, we mentioned earlier, credit worthiness on the ability to get a loan for to start a business. The same process, the same life cycle applies, but now the stakes have risen. So I think we have yet to get here, but eventually where we need to get, Alan, is the ability for each individual to be able to control their exposure. And that really is what we mean when we talk about privacy as an example. And so each of us is kicking off data. I'm walking, I'm getting tracked by my Apple Watch, or you know, I'm walking down the street and I'm getting caught by a camera on somebody's ring or a camera on their house, right? All those sorts of things. That's all data that's showing up in models that end up getting deployed out in the world somewhere. At some point, I predict we need to get to the point at which we are able to independently control our exposure because that is the first step to trustworthiness. So we've got to be able to figure out eventually how we have what I would refer to as personal data sovereignty, where I get to determine how much of my data I'm going to provide to you versus the next podcast and have some means by which your utilization of that data is limited. It's guardrailed such that you can't go and exploit the content that you've derived from me for a purpose outside of that for which I consent. Now, we aren't there yet. The technology infrastructure is not in place 
to even start to put us in that direction, nor are the economic incentives in that direction yet. And so there's, I think, over time, a much broader conversation to be had. We're seeing the inklings of it. I don't know how much you keep up with what's going on, the large language models and everything, but with the chat GPT and grabbing all the 4% of the internet and what's happening, you've got authors saying, hey, wait a second, I didn't authorize you to take my book. (laughs) You just violated copyright law. I want a piece of that, right? And so there are some inklings of that, of what I'm describing starting to pop up now, albeit generally at a business-to-business level. I think if we truly are going to get to a point at which we've got a digitized economy and individuals able and prepared to participate in that digitized economy, one of the key pillars there is going to be personal data sovereignty. That's what you're saying. So there's going to be a lot of data collection, sounds like, and use before we hit anything like that technology, right? Because I was just thinking, my God, just managing all that would have to be automated and you'd have to have some levels of like, you couldn't individually adjudicate every request for use of your data, right? That's right. So you've got to have a rubric of source that says, you know, if you are a government, then there's a common kind of base level that you have to have in order for me to participate in this society. But if you are a financial services institution and I give you access to X, if you are a a healthcare hospital, I'm going to give you access to Y about me. Now, again, that would necessitate a different level of ability to authenticate who I am, right, than we have today. Like, I'll show you my driver's license on my passport. Maybe I have a password to get into something and there's a little two-factor. Like, that's the extent of our security apparatus for the most part for most consumers. But I think if we can forecasting existential harms 25 years away, let's start forecasting what it might look like to participate fully at 25 years away in a digitized economy. And I think this is only one of a number of different items that might need to be a part of that. And it's interesting to me, I mean, I sort of have a bias where I think that we talk about privacy and maybe, and I like that data sovereignty, like that definitely makes sense to me, but we talk about the value of privacy. And my fear is that people actually don't really value privacy all that much. They clearly don't when they go and do all the things that they do, understanding that the options are limited. But like, are we going to, in the pursuit of some amorphous privacy that where you can ask people, would you pay 10 bucks for privacy? And they say, no, right? Are we going to like, for instance, HIPAA has created problems with doing research on medical data that maybe a bunch of people have died because we didn't have a cure? Or are we going to create a bunch of barriers to the use of AI that in fear of this privacy or something similar and lose all these benefits before this all gets worked out by some set of lawyers somewhere? So maybe, I think getting the nomenclature, getting the architecture and all that stuff has to be done before any big idea like I'm, I'm sharing with you has the opportunity to see the light of day. I think what you point to, though, is kind of, again, a, a philosophical topic here around privacy. I think about it in terms of, like I said, controlled exposure. I think there's a difference between our privacy, our desire to control our exposure, and then our anonymity. So I think there's a lot of discussion around privacy that eventually turns into, I don't want anybody to know who I am and what I do. 
all right, so you want to remain anonymous, right? But on one hand, you are basically a hermit. <laughs> but on the other hand, you want to participate in a society. And I think most people intuitively get that you've got to expose yourself in a society to some degree. I do think that it's fair to hear people out when they say, hey, look, I want to control my exposure because exposure creates vulnerability. Vulnerability leads to risk. Everyone has a different risk tolerance. Therefore, everyone should have a, an ability to control their exposure to that risk. That's all that is. Some people drive the speed limit. Some people you know, go past the speed limit. Now, there are consequences to both. The speed pedal was underneath your foot, right? and you had the ability to deal with that. And so that's all I'm suggesting, that we ultimately you know, I can foresee getting to a space like that. And if you look at what's going on in Europe, they're starting to think about some of these things already. So commonly, folks talk about the EU AI Act, which gets a lot of attention, but they've got a data act as well. And the data act starts to go down the path of putting more control into the hands of individuals when it comes to data. They're, one of their primary drivers is this idea of monetizing one's own data. T today, you know, we basically give our data away for free. So kind of to your point, we kind of exchange privacy for convenience and so on. But our data is given away for free. It gets aggregated by, you know, the big hyperscalers. They use it, repackage it, sell it back to us, the whole thing, right? And over there, they recognize that, you know, the big hyperscalers are all U.S. firms. That has something to do with that, I think. So it's like, why would we give all of our citizens the data to these U.S. firms? It, does that make sense? And if I were sitting in their position, I would say, no, it probably doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so I think one of the levers that they have is kind of this notion of data act. And at the same time, it creates a level of inclusive participation from all of their citizens. So we'll see where it goes. You know, it's still on the drawing boards. You know, obviously this is speculation, but I would assume that the U.S. is not going to take the same approach. And as I told you, I was interviewing one of the advisors of the German parliament today and making the case that look like Gmail, that you're giving up, they're scanning your, your email to train their models. But what a huge benefit. I remember using stuff before Gmail and it was terrible, right? And so the one thing I worry about is that we kill that Gmail because of this. And, and my hope is that U.S. regulation, I think what I heard from you is exactly right. It's, this is going to be an evolving process. It takes a long time. And I think walking out and regulating this sector today is kind of nuts to me, but it's going to take some of these getting the nomenclature down, understanding the value of these things, the pros and cons, and then some of the technology infrastructure to be able to people to make effective decisions like that. Yep. Starts with the principles and values. Eventually, the technology simply enables our values. So I think that's where we started off. Exactly. That's where we'll finish up. So that was great. Thank you, Reggie, for being on. And uh, good luck with your work with uh, SAS and with the advisory committee. Thank you. Appreciate it. AI, government, and the future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, thanks for listening.